Now, I want to look at chapter 18 because this relates to our our topic. In Nehemiah. So you might want to open your Bibles to Nehemiah. We're going to do some uh, word study. So I put out a couple of concordances. There's one on this side. Greg's got the Vines Expository Dictionary. That's what's up on the screen on the right-hand panel. And we're going to just sort of work our way through <clears throat> through the assignment that you did on uh Nehemiah 4 through 11. And we started with 18. I kind of skipped over some other chapters, which you can read on your own, because it just give you some things to, to work for. Next time, I want you to read chapters 19. Let's see what I put on the syllabus. I've got to revise the syllabus a little bit. We did 18 this time. So next time, I want you to read, this is a revision, read 19 through uh, 20, uh, 21, 19 through 21. <clears throat> More things to look for. As I pointed out when we began, I'm taking a lot more time on observation because observation is foundational. The more time you spend just reading the text, looking at the text, getting the uh, basic information, answering the basic questions, then what, we, what you'll find is when we get to interpretation, it's pretty easy to figure out what the what the interpretation is. But most people just jump ahead. They're too big a hurry, and they don't take enough time just on, on observation and finding out uh, and doing finding out what the text says and doing in, uh, the, the investigation. So... All right. Now, the way Hendricks worked, we he started off with Acts one eight. I've got that on the schedule for our assignment next time, and we'll just work with that a little bit. But he, in this chapter, we shift from working with the New Testament to going to an Old Testament passage and dealing with a narrative. There's a lot more to look up sometimes in an Old Old Testament passage. Now, remember. Whenever we're working through a passage in the Scripture, that the verse, there there weren't any verse breaks in the original, there weren't any chapter breaks, and we just sort of worked, worked through the text and without uh, looking at that. If you're working in, in a, and you've got access to a, uh, where you can copy and paste scripture into like a word document, you can do that and take out the verse breaks and just put, print that in there just so you can read it as a as a narrative without the breaks and the chapter breaks and verse breaks, things of that nature. And so the assignment was to work on Nehemiah one four through eleven, and this uh, chapter helps us to work through that, working through it as a paragraph. A paragraph is going to be your basic unit of, of uh, study, not the verse, because verses sometimes are artificial. As I pointed out earlier, I think that, that one of the trends of the King James Version and subsequent English translations is to try as much as possible to make each verse a standalone sentence. Uh, sometimes they, they're not very successful, at doing that, so you'll have uh, maybe a Greek sentence of five or six verses is broken into two or three uh, English sentences. Uh, but they're all a paragraph revolves around a theme, and you get m- more out of that. So you always want to look at the at the entire entire context. Now, when we come to, I think I'm just going to close out this window rather than looking at the book. We come to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to look at the prayer that begins in verse 4, which begins, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, when we start looking, reading through this passage, and we look at the first part of it, one of the first things we notice is that when he says, When I heard these words... 
we should identify some things in terms of observation. Who is the speaker? Who is referred to by that first-person singular pronoun? Who is the I? Uh, when I heard these words, what words? Uh, these words immediately takes us back to um, verse 3. There's a message there. Uh, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So when he he, uh, he hears this message, we have to identify the I, so we have to go all the way back to the first verse, and we read that these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah. Uh, now it happened in the month Kislev, in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani... One of my brothers and some of the men from Judah came, and I asked them uh, concerning uh, the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, so when we start our study of verse 4, we always, usually whenever you start a study on something, you have to look at the immediate context, and it's going to take you back to identifying certain things. So the first thing we have to do is identify the I, and the I, as I said, refers to Nehemiah. What do we know about Nehemiah? Where would we go to get information about Nehemiah? Hmm? Bible Dictionary. Now, I'm going to be using more of the fun little tools in Logos up here to show you this, but in Logos, we have a great little tool they've developed called <coughs> uh, Bible Facts. And so you can look at the person. I don't, you know, on the right side you have different uh, different things you can select that you want to investigate. You click on when it's a person or a place. You can select that, and then you have a a tool or what they call a report called Bible Facts, and uh, and it can be also places and things. And then you have a list of uh, all the different, and see, I have, uh, uh, over the years, I have acquired a lot of dictionaries and encyclopedias. I find these to be uh, extremely informative and helpful. So I have quite a few of them, so I can just go through this list and look up uh, names and people and every one of these different uh, Bible encyclopedias. But if I just want to get basic information, I would select Bible Facts, Click on that, and that opens up a this report called Bible Facts on Nehemiah. Now, I can't do a lot about, let me see. Yeah, I can. I can enlarge this a little bit so you can see a little better. And it gives you, uh, gives us, uh, Nehemiah governor, gives us a basic summary of who he is. He's the governor of Jerusalem whose story is recorded in the book of Nehemiah gives you a little bit of information about uh, some major events in Nehemiah's life from the book of Nehemiah. You can click on this word, more. It'll give you more information. And then you can scroll down, and it lists all the uh, articles in the different uh, Bible dictionaries, uh, which you can then investigate to find out things about Nehemiah. So we'll just go to one um, here in ZEB, which is this uh, Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible. And when I click on that, it opens up. Let me see. There we go. It opens up the Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible to the article on Nehemiah. And these articles give you a lot of information about Nehemiah. Now, you have what I asked for you to get for the class was Unger's Bible Dictionary. If you go to Unger's Bible Dictionary, yeah, here we go. New Unger's Bible Dictionary gives you this sort of a breakdown, this is what you would see in the book that you, you've got. 
And it identifies three different individuals in the Bible whose name is Nehemiah. Uh, first of all, he's the second named of the people of the province whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned with Zerubbabel from Babylon. He's identified in as Ezra 2.2 and Nehemiah 7.7. Then you have the son of Azbuk, an official of Beit Zur in the mountains of Judah, one who was prom, uh, prominent in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah, mentioned in Nehemiah 3.16. And then you have the governor of the Jews. The genealogy of Nehemiah is unknown, except that he was the son of Hakaliah in Nehemiah 1.1 and brother of Hanani in 7.2. All we know for certain of Nehemiah is found in the book bearing his name. So this gives you a lot of information about Nehemiah, and it's uh, five or six different paragraphs, and this is pretty helpful in understanding uh, who Nehemiah was, his background, character, things of that nature. So you can go through and uh, read an article like that, and you'll get a lot of information that you can jot down that par- performs part of your uh, background in identifying who Nehemiah is. Um, what are some other things that we might want to do in terms of identifying Nehemiah? Good. What period of time in history are we talking about here? And he, um, uh, and this article tells us that he first appears at Susa as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes Longimanus, uh, mentioned in Nehemiah 1, 11 to 2, 1. Now there are several different Persian rulers that go by the name of Artaxerxes. And so it's important to identify those. Uh, the date for this would be approximately 446 uh, B.C., and this is when this event takes place. Now, what do we know about Israel's history that f- plugs into that? We know that in 722, the northern kingdom was taken out and destroyed by Assyria. In 586, the southern kingdom was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. In 538, you had the first return by Zerubbabel, so this is much later than that. They first began to return to the land in 538. They dedicated the temple, the second temple, the, uh, under Zerubbabel, in 516. So this is in 446. So this is uh, uh, some, what, what would that be, 446? This is 54 and 16 is... Uh, 70 years after the temple was rebuilt. And this report is saying that, uh, in verse 3 over here, that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When were they burnt with fire? 586. They still haven't been rebuilt. What does that mean? Hmm? Well, that's one, one, that's, that's right. They, that something's delayed them. It's been 70 years and they still haven't completed the rebuilding of Jerusalem. What else does that tell you? If the walls are down, the city's defenseless. And so it's not brought back together. Now this is important because, uh, it's also going to relate to the prophecy in Daniel 9 that when Daniel predicted, now Daniel is before Nehemiah. Daniel is writing that prophecy around five, um, around 540 or so before there's a return of anyone to the land. And he said that there would be a period of 483 periods of sevens uh, from the decree to go forth and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah here is, we know, in 446, they still haven't rebuilt the walls. But we'll learn from chapter 2 is that when they rebuild the walls, there's going to be a decree given in chapter 2 from Artaxerxes sending Nehemiah back, authorizing him to rebuild the walls. That's the decree that is prophesied in Daniel 9, uh, 26 and 27, the decree to go back and rebuild the walls, rebuild the the, uh, defenses of of Jerusalem. so now if we look at verse 1, it says this happened in the month of Kislev. What do we know about that? It's winter. It's, uh, Kislev is in, in, uh, roughly comparable to our November or December 
on the Jewish calendar, and so it's in the 20th year of what? Of Artaxerxes. He comes to power in 464, so this is roughly 445 to 444 uh, B.C. while he's in Susa, the capital. Now, this is kind of fun. You want to know where things are located, so I do a right-click on that, and here we have place instead of person. We go to Bible Facts, and it's looking up Susa, and it's going to give us several maps. And we can look at these different maps to see one that uh, would help us. See this map right here, the kingdoms of Babylon. Uh, then we have here the Roman Empire. Let's see if we have a Persian, Persian Empire map right here. And if we scroll into that, we see... Uh, we can get a little geography here. Here's Jerusalem over here in the west. Crossing uh, this area here would be modern Lebanon. Then over here we get into modern Iraq. And then over here we're into modern Iran. Susa is located here. Now this is one of those fun little things I like about, about Lagos. If I move the cursor from, I want you to watch right up here if you can read this. This gives you your longitude and latitude for the location of your various uh, places on the map. So if I put my the cursor over Susa here, I have one readout there. But if I move over to Damascus, notice it changed. Once it changes, I can then go up to the little Google Map icon right here, and I can click on the Google Map. It opened up on my other laptop, but here, my other screen, and it identifies, uh, should identify Damascus right here. I can look at a map. Now, I must have, uh, let me close that. And that's Susa. Yeah, here's Damascus right here. I, I did this earlier. If, uh, for some reason, if you Okay, now let me try it again. This should be in in Damascus. Sometimes, for some reason, it it was. I got to. Oh, there we go. Here's Damascus. Now you can look at this as just a map, or with Google Maps, you can look at it from Google Earth. And see, you can get a view of Damascus as it looks like from Google Earth, or you can look at it uh, from a satellite view. And if you just go out a little bit, you see Damascus is located here. And if you move over here, uh, right here you have Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is on the northern part of Israel, right on the border with Syria and Lebanon. So you see how close you are on the Israeli border right here, and here's Damascus. It's less than 40 miles. Just a little geography lesson. doesn't take long to move from Damascus down to, um, down to Israel. Okay, here is Susa, located right here, which is in modern Iran, and you can zoom in and zoom out. And so you can do this. You can Google, use Google Map or Google Earth, and you can put in these place names, and you can see what it looks like today. And so you can zoom in. You can't get a lot of detail here because this is in Iran, and, of course, they don't want you looking down at street level. But it does give you a little bit of an idea of what the uh, terrain and what the area looks like. It looks pretty arid, uh, desert. This was the site of the Winter Palace uh, there were two pa two uh, locations for the palace in um, in Persia. One is in Susa, and the other was north in Ekbatana, which we'll have to look at it on an ancient map, is located here. So they would move in the summer. They would be in the north in the mountains where it was cooler. In the uh, winter, they would go down to uh, Susa where uh, the temperature was a little, a little milder and wasn't quite as cold. 
So it's fun to look these things up, then to go to a, um, in fact, if you go direct, if you're looking at Susa here, and we go to the Google map, this is, if, if I got that right, this is, Sush is the modern name of the area. I don't know if I got that right. It's a little tricky to play with sometimes if you move the cursor. But Sush is the name of the modern uh, the modern location. And you can look in the dictionaries and encyclopedias and get, get more uh, more information. <clears throat> now we go back to the text. We learn that Nehemiah has a father named Hakaliah, has a brother named Hanani, and they came from uh, Judah, and they, their news is extremely distressing to uh, Nehemiah. Uh, we learn later on that Nehemiah is a cupbearer. What's a cupbearer? What's the significance of a cupbearer? Yeah, it, originally the position was this was the wine taster. There's a lot of intrigue and duplicity in the various uh, uh, palaces in, in the ancient world. And so this, this is basically the food taster to make sure that the, that the king is not getting poisoned. Uh, as a result of that, he, the, the position of the, of the cupbearer would be someone who was highly trusted, someone who became very intimate with the king and the royal family. And eventually this position evolved into what we would call chief of staff. And so it's not just a position of a servant, but it became a political person because the, the person in that position would be one of the most trustworthy individuals in, in the country. And so the emperor, the king, would, would rely upon them. So here is Nehemiah. He's a Jew. He's not a Persian. And he has risen to a high position within the empire, second highest position in the Persian Empire. And God has placed him there for a reason. And he is extremely concerned about his people and about what is going on in in uh, Israel or back in Judah. And, of course, we see from his prayer that he is extremely knowledgeable about the Scripture and he knows how to pray, and he, from his uh, response to and reaction to the news, it shows that he is focused on the ultimate solution for the problem, which is uh, taking something, uh, taking the problem before God. So, um, what are some of the things that you observed as we went through the prayer from four uh, through eleven? Four through eleven. So we have uh, seven verses here uh, of the prayer. So what what do you see in verse four? Okay, he sat down, he wept, mourned, and fasted and prayed. What's the relationship between those five terms? Are they all the same? Is it ex- no, they're not. He sat down, he wept and mourned. They're separated into, from two different clauses. So the, f- the first three indicate what happens at the beginning. He initially sits down, he weeps and mourns for days. And then the next two are, ex- are, are, are participles. He's fasting and praying. So they're describing uh, additional circumstances uh, to his the, the, to his period of, of mourning. Now, how would we find out? Are there what? What are the? Uh, uh, we see these five verbs. What would you say are the most significant verbs there? You just assume that you know what they mean. You got hung up on the fasting. Hmm? And the morning. And the morning. What did you learn? I didn't take it any further than that, but 
on the app. Why? Why? Because I don't understand fasting. You don't understand fasting. Okay. Fasting, you know, nowhere in Scripture is it commanded. Fasting is something that we read is described in Scripture that they did, but we don't ever read any kind of command for it. Where did it come from? I mean, that's that's a big question. Now, I I think that that fasting is significant because what it shows is that you're not engaged uh, in in all that's involved in 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 eating in the ancient world. Uh, we're we're so used to what do we do when we we get hungry? Well, if we're really hungry, we just head down to McDonald's or Burger King or someplace, and we can get food immediately. We can go to the grocery store, and we can get items that are already prepared. We can get things that all we have to do is come home, and we put them in the microwave. There, food preparation for us is something that is very, very simple and very quick, whereas in the ancient world, this is something that took a lot of time, not only to prepare the food you're going to cook, but also to cook it, you've got to stoke the fire and everything else. So it's very, very time-consuming and, and distracting just to take care of all the necessities of life. And I think that what we see in fasting is the setting aside. You're, you're so distressed and focused on an issue. It's such a priority that you don't have time to take care of all these normal details in life. So the fasting is showing that this is so important to me that 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 I'm just focusing on prayer. I'm not doing these these other things. Well, the question that I had was a couple of verses down is saying, you know, he approaches the king four months later. Is he still fasting and praying? If so, he's in pretty sad shape. Right, right. Well, I don't think he's he's going for that long. I think it's he just says for days. It's not for weeks. Um, and this is his his initial prayer, and we see how how this strikes him. Um, this 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 really hits him hard. This is distressing news. Uh, there's there this there's there's not only a uh, I mean there's a visceral response to this bad news. Um, he's mourning as if as as if someone has died. So, so it shows his emotional state that he's not being emotion. He's not just being emotional, but but it, it has an impact on him. And this this is something that I think is important to understand. Is that in Scripture, emotions are not ignored. It's not that we don't have emotions, and what these emotions do is they drive him to dependence upon God. And it doesn't just he, he he's he's not acting as if they're not there. Or as if there's something wrong with it, but it it drives him in the direction of dependency upon God, and he's weeping and mourning, and this leads him to the action of of fasting and praying uh, before the God of heaven. Anything else that we you see in that first verse? The main verb sat down, weep, mourn. Okay, inside of the back clause would be your main verb. Yeah, those are, those would be your main verbs. And then fasting and praying, the ing usually indicates uh, a, a, a participle. And then we have the title, the God of Heaven. God of Heaven is used earlier in um, Genesis one time. This was a typical way in which Persians addressed their deities as the God of heaven. But the, I think that's derivative. So you get into this observation where some people say that, that Nehemiah possibly was, and the Jews were influenced to refer to God as the God of heaven because they were, had been influenced from the Persian culture. But if you do a word study on the phrase, you find that, that it is used, uh, as, as early as I think Genesis 22, which shows that this originated in a Jewish context and others p- picked it up from them. Uh, it doesn't originate from a pagan concept. You, you, you know, the, this, that's one of the problems you have with the, the liberal influence and evolutionary religion ideas is that the Jews get influenced by their surrounding culture and that's, 
while that's true in some cases, uh, when you're talking about people like Nehemiah or the you know biblical heroes, um, they're not doing things out of pagan motives or because they're influenced by pagan religions. They're they're focused. So uh, you have the term the God of Heaven. This emphasizes he his sovereignty. What other as, uh, attributes might it might it uh, might it emphasize? It could. I would think omnipotence, because he, he he's seeking God as the one who can solve the problem, uh, and then then so this is a, and, and what kind of a statement is verse four in relation to verses five through eleven? Preamble. Yeah, it's a summary. It's a topical. This tells you this situation, and then. Uh, he's praying before the God of heaven, and then verse 5 starts to tell us what the details were of his prayer. Verse 5, how does he address God? Hmm? He addresses him as, O Lord God of heaven. So this is more specific. Here in the summary, he's just praying before the God of heaven, but then you get the specificity in verse 5 that he's praying to Yahweh, God of heaven. So he's not just praying to some uh, generic deity in heaven, but he is praying to Yahweh. Now, um, the the specific proper name of God is always, you know, the first time this is revealed to Moses is when Moses is going back to deliver the uh, Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And it is connected, even though it's used earlier in Genesis, it is uh, sort of picks up a new significance in Exodus as being connected to uh, God who enters into this covenant relationship uh, with Israel. And so whenever we see the name Yahweh used, usually in the background is an emphasis on this this covenant relationship that God has made with Israel. And the same is true here. He's talking to him as not just any God, but Yahweh, the God of heaven, further defined as the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So we see some uh, attributes of God emphasized here in terms of his greatness and in terms of the fact that he is awesome. Now, what what words would we want to investigate? We look at the English here. What words would we want to investigate? Awesome. What does that What does that mean? Um, what is that in the in the King in New King James? Anybody look that up? What is it? Awesome or Look, Greg, look it up. Look up awesome in, um, in vines. What do you find out? Have you there yet? Hmm? Awe is the only one that's there. Now, if you looked at this up, see, I've got this up on the screen. And it comes from out of the verb yare, which means to be afraid, to stand in awe or fear. So it's important to look up a word like awe. I remember remember when awesome was, was a popular slang term back in the late 80s or 90s. And, um, and I remember somebody in the church... I was passionate. Don't you think it's wrong to refer to God as awesome? No, this is a historic term referring an, an, an historic translation. Um, and if we look at, uh, I looked up, looking it up in the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, awe is a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. As a verb, it means to inspire. Uh, with awe or to inspire with this reverential fear. And this is a difficult uh, concept. The, the old English word would be to bring terror or dread 
Uh, I don't think there's a really good one word in English to translate either of these concepts of the fear of the Lord, because it's not fear in the sense that you're you're watching, um, you know, a horror movie or something scary or uh, on television or in a movie, but it's it's the fact that uh, uh, you're you're five years old and you're called into the principal's office. You know, there's an element of fear there, but there's this element of dread. Because you may have done something wrong, you just feel uneasy because you're before some great power that has great uh, uh, influence over your life. So this is the idea of awesome, that God's power, it, it stresses his omnipotence, his power, things of that nature. And so you can go, just look up the word, English word, look up the word in your vines, and it tells you, uh, a lot of information it's used of a person in an exalted position, and um, that, that is, it's not simple fear, but it's reverence, where an individual recognizes the power and position of the individual revered and renders proper respect. In this sense, the word may imply submission to a proper ethical relationship to God. Now, that idea of submission certainly comes across in the text. He's the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And so that that second half of that phrase is talking about the ethical response that we have to who God is and his person. But before we get there, we learn he is the one who keeps the covenant. What covenant is it talking about? It's the Mosaic covenant. Uh, who keeps the covenant and loving kindness. And so both of these words are important to look up. Loving kindness is chesed. Very good, Judy. It's chesed. When we look at that up uh, in the dictionary, we'll just look at lines. This is a word, and usually it'll give you, these are different ways in which it's translated. Loving kindness, steadfast love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, goodness used over 240 times in the Old Testament, and it's uh, one of the most important words used in the, in the Old Testament. It indicates faithful or loyal love, that God is faithful and steadfast to the promises of his, of his covenant. Um, so, that, so this is the foundation of his prayer. He's reminding God of what he has promised in the Mosaic Covenant. That he, that God is the one who keeps the covenant, even though Israel might break the covenant, and God is faithful and loyal to the promises in his covenant. And this is directed towards those who love him and keep his commandments. Now you've heard, heard me, in fact I think I mentioned this even this morning in our study in Matthew, how in the Old Testament and in the New Testament there's a connection between obedience to God and loving him, that the barometer, as it were, to our love for God is related to our obedience to him. Now, what would you think you would want to do in this context? What kind of a study would you want to do? Anything come to mind? The relationship between the covenant and obedience and what God does? Yeah, um, that's good. I'm going to refine it a little bit and say you want to see... How many times in Scripture love and keep are used in the same context? Now, this is where computer studies become very valuable because uh, if you were to look up love in your concordance, so you can look the word love up and look in the Old Testament. Um, you, have a, you, you, you all have a couple of concordances over here. You can look the word love up. And then you have to read through all of the uses of love and find, if you can, how many times love and keep are used in the same context. How long does that take? Yeah, that, that takes a lot of time. Uh, I've got a shortcut here because earlier I performed a search where I looked up love. Let me see if I can enlarge this a little bit. I looked up love, all the uses of love within four words of keep. And so now we have uh, Exodus 20, verse 6, 
God shows loving kindness. There's our word chesed. Loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 5.10, God is the one who shows loving kindness again, faithful, loyal love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. 7.9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Then we have Nehemiah 1.5, again in Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9.4, those who love him and keep his commandments. And then when we get into the New Testament, we find Jesus saying the same thing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14, 15. Uh, John 14, 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. First uh, Peter 4, 5, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. That's a different context. Um, Why does it skip 1 John? Hmm? Why would it skip 1 John? Isn't 1 John kind of all about that? It is, but you don't have love within four words of keep. Yeah, I just set it up on that parameter. Now, if I changed it to six words or seven words, it might show a few more verses. But that gives you a main a, a main idea. So what does that tell you about Nehemiah when he prays like that? Right, that he really understands the Old Testament. And what else does that tell you about Nehemiah? Hmm? Right, he, but he is, he's praying on the basis of what God has said in His Word. He's, he is, as it were, he's structuring his prayer as an appeal to God with reference to what God has promised and said in His Word. He's, he's basically saying, okay, God, you said this, you made these promises, now I'm holding you to that. That's the foundation for my prayer. I'm, I'm, he's coming to God, uh, as a, a like a lawyer, coming before a judge, building a logical case for why God should do what he's going to ask him to do. Okay, and he starts this just by the terminology he uses to address God and who he is, brings all that to bear. Then verse 6, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Uh, Does God actually have ears and eyes? No. So what's he talking about here? This is obviously figure of speech. Ears and eyes are what? Ears refer to, you know, God responding, listening to. Eyes refer to what God sees or what God knows. Okay, let your uh, ear be attentive. That is now listen to my prayer. Respond to it positively. Your eyes open. Your eyes usually relate to knowledge, God's knowledge, his omniscience. To hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. Now, day and night does probably doesn't mean that he's doing it without a break. But he's this is a figure of speech called a merism, where it, it, it's like um, by by expressing two using the two opposites, up and down, heavens and earth. That it, it shows a, uh, it's related to expressing the totality of something, that he's continuously doing something. Um, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, and then notice right at the front, he's confessing sin. He's, he is doing the same thing. If we looked at that passage, uh, in Daniel 9, where he, uh, address God in much the same way, using the terms loving kindness and uh, for those who love him and keep his commandments. Uh, Daniel is praying a prayer of confession for all of the people. Nehemiah does the same thing here. He stands at like a priest going to God, confessing the sins of, of Israel. Uh, and then he begins to identify those sins in verse 7. We've, he's not, he doesn't just say, we've sinned a lot of sins against you, but he says, we've acted corruptly against you. We haven't kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances. So he gets more specific. <coughs> and then he reminds God of his word. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses. And so this is coming out of, he quotes from Leviticus 26.3 here. If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. Uh, but if you return, this is from Deuteronomy 30, verses 2 and 3. How many times have you all heard that from me? 
we know that, so he's taking the promises of God within the judgment passages of, of the Torah and he's using that as his basis for his appeal. So he quotes from Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, I will gather them. This is also Deuteronomy chapter 30. And then he reminds them of who uh, the Israelites are in terms of his people, who you redeemed by your great power. When did that happen? Egypt, Egypt when they come out at the Exodus. Now, all of that is just giving God the reason why he should answer his prayer. He hasn't given his request yet. He doesn't do that till verse 11. Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants. That's repetition. He's already said that earlier. Now he comes back to it. Uh, listen to the prayer. And, and the idea there is listen and respond positively. Um, and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Who's this man? Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes. So his request here is that God is going to make the king receptive to his request. He knows what he's going to do, and he's praying ahead of time for days and days that he'll get the opportunity to go before Artaxerxes the king and make a request to go back to Jerusalem in order to complete the, the rebuilding of the walls and protection around Jerusalem. So then chapter 2 we read, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, which is in the spring, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So now we've gone from roughly Thanksgiving to Easter. Okay? Uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, wine was before him. I took up the wine, gave it to the king, and he says, now I had not been sad in his presence. Being sad in the king's presence would not be a good thing. And at this point, though he is, and the king identifies it, starts asking him, and this gives him the opportunity to uh, make his request before the king, and God answers his prayer and makes the king receptive, and the king will send, authorize him to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that's important also. We know that it's in the month of Nisan. We know from um, certain uh, historical records that this would have occurred at a certain time in the month because this is when decrees were always sort of published at a certain time in the month. And so you can then go back and use that to um, chart out the fulfillment of the Daniel 70th week and count up the days and figure out when the Messiah was going to come. So that's just sort of additional information. But this is how you kind of work through a passage, looking at the at the structure and dividing it up. Any questions? Do you think he was praying that way all the time, or did he just pray once and leave it in God's hands for all those months? Well, no, he's, he's praying it. He says he prays day and night. So I think he did that for for a number of days. Where he is initially, he is in this this state of um, uh, of, of of grief and mourning because of what he's heard. Now, I don't think that goes on for five months, but I think it went on for a long time, for probably several weeks. And he is praying and fasting. And I don't know, um, I don't know how long the text doesn't say that, but he probably he he's waiting for the proper time and the proper opening. For, to appeal to Artaxerxes. But he's not just praying at once and then forgetting. He's praying continuously, day and night. I don't want us to get into interpretation yet, but verse 4, is that a, a way of impressing God? I mean, like, I'm trying to think of, you know, we get all these requests to pray for people's health and, and so forth. It, if we... Does it mean if we don't weep and pray and sit down and fast? No. That no, there's not we're a not going to get no. prayer. Okay, that's a good question because some people look at that and say, oh, for, for God to answer his prayer, he had to get, you know, he's trying to show how, how, uh, how important it is. And, and that's putting, that, that's reversing your cause and effect. Yeah, it's, that's right, that's works. It's, it's a reversing cause and effect. What this is telling us is he is in a, State a certain state of mind. He is distressed over a situation. Now, 
the fact that he's distressed is not what's causing God to respond. That's telling us more about Nehemiah than it is about God. It's telling us how important this is to Nehemiah. It's not telling us why God is answering his prayer. It's the, the text never says that, well, because he was, so, he was fasting, because he was distressed, because he was so concerned. In fact, the prayer, the prayer is not an emotional prayer. The prayer is a very logically thought out prayer, taking scripture and presenting a logical scripture based rationale for why God needs to answer the prayer that he is praying. And so the reason God answers the prayer is, um, that's part of his sovereign purpose, number one, because God could have said, no, it's not time yet. But it is related to his, the, the, I think it's related to the structure. You see the same thing with some of the apostles' prayers in Acts. We've gone through that, where they, they go back and they take elements of Scripture and they structure a logical rationale based on based on scripture they're basically taking promises that God has made putting them together and saying okay lord you've promised this 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 and this now i'm praying for this in light of what you have promised and so you're you're not just emoting you are you've thought through your prayer requests and you're presenting that that a solid biblical case for why god should do what you've requested him to do there wasn't a positive outcome because we didn't put enough heart into this. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that, that's, that's not ever emphasized in Scripture. When it comes to his, the, it, it goes above what it's introducing, uh, the people who came, it says, and I, one of my brethren. Yeah. How do you get the fact that this is actually a brother and not one of just an Israelite that comes and why do they come to Nehemiah rather than anybody else? Well they come Hananiah, one of my brothers. This is this is a different type of phrase rather than just saying one of um you know uh some because he contrasts that with men from Judah. So the men from Judah would be other Israelites. Okay, so he's making a distinction between Hanani as a brother versus the others who are also Jews. Right, that's his actual blood brother, and also because that Nehemiah is in the political position that he's in, he is somebody who can get something done, perhaps. And he would be a leader in the Jewish community there in, in Persia because he's the number two guy in the kingdom. So he's got influence. Okay? All right, well, it's 10 till. Let's wrap up. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening and help us as we read to think about what the text is saying, how it's structured, that we may... Um, Come to a better, better understanding of just what is being said and why. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.